Perfect. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is David Benjamin, your host of the Healthy, Wild, and Free podcast. Today, I'm really excited about this guest because I actually got to know her personally when I lived in Costa Rica earlier this year. And unlike most of my guests that I uh, find online or read their books, uh, I got to know her in person and learn a lot of interesting things that I probably wouldn't have learned conventionally through books and, and teachers um, just by getting to know her in person. So her name is Katrina Hanna. She's a yoga teacher, and she started practicing in 1989, which is actually a fun fact. That's the year that I'm born. Uh, <laughs> she started after a car accident and began teaching yoga 17 years ago. Her background is in elementary education, and she transitioned into teaching yoga to children when she relocated to Santa Barbara, California in 2002. She received funding from the Balm Foundation to start the Child's Pose Project, which is a project to teach children yoga in educational settings. And I'm excited to talk to her about that because not many people are doing that that I've heard of, at least in the Midwest at all. So that'll be cool to talk about. And she studied with many yoga masters, including Eric Schiffman, Rod Stryker, Judith Lasseter, Patricia Hansen, and pretty much everyone else awesome in the yoga world. Uh, she studied Ayurveda with Robert Savoda. And in this podcast, we're going to discuss the three doshas, uh, as well as why she doesn't recommend Bikram yoga for very specific reasons. So be sure to listen when she talks about that. Katrina, how are you doing today? I'm very well, David. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad you're here and really excited about this and really just excited for you to share all your wisdom with the audience. Uh, I want to start the interview kind of with a traditional question that I ask everyone I have on the show, and that is, how did you get started in the world of yoga and Ayurveda? Well, it goes back to a car accident that I was in when I was 21. Um, I actually, I broke my hip and my femur in three places and my ankle on the right side and I had a separated shoulder and was in a coma for a, a few days. Um, so when I recovered or was in recovery, my physicians did not think that I was going to recover enough to walk without a cane with traditional physical therapy. So I chose to try yoga instead and I found it very effective and continued with that practice um, long after the recovery process was completed. Wow. So I didn't know that. That's interesting. So you did you actually use a cane at all or yoga pretty yes. much? Okay. No, I did for a while. I went through, um, first it was a wheelchair and then a walker, and then my shoulder had recovered enough that I could use crutches, and from there I progressed onto a cane, and it took about four months on a cane before I was able to walk without that. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's a very cool story of recovery. I want to talk a bit about uh, the doshas because this is something, and it was fun, just to share this quick backstory on how this came about for, for everyone listening. Uh, while in Costa Rica, uh, Katrina shared with me that I have a lot of vata, and I didn't know what that was, <laughs> <laughs> so naturally I asked her, and she shared with me it was kind of like fire and heat, and maybe I'm completely way off, but I'm pretty sure that was somewhere close in that range. And she shared with me about the three doshas, and I found it very interesting. So what are the three doshas? They're vata, pitta, and kapha. Vata is a disposition that makes you very creative and have lots of ideas. It's very light in its energy. Pitta is the one that's more um, hot and forceful. It, I think, accounts for a lot of your 
ambition and your ability to manifest the creative ideas that you have that definitely come from your vata disposition as well. Kapha is more of a sluggish energy. Kapha is associated with moisture and slow movement and coolness. Interesting. So if someone is if someone is more of one than the other, how how would you know? Just based off is there like personality traits kind of or what goes along with that? Yes, there are. There are personality traits, um, mental characteristics, and emotional characteristics, and also physical attributes that are associated with each dosha. It's usually pretty easy to tell what someone is just from looking at their physical type. Um, Vata people tend to be either short or tall because it indicates irregularity. Pitta person will have a more medium build, and Kapha people are a little bit more... Not necessarily heavy, but thicker through the joints and more sturdy and stable in their build. The mental characteristics that go along with each one, mental emotional characteristics, uh, Vata type people will respond to trigger situations with a fear-based response. Pitta people tend to become angry when they're confronted with a situation that triggers them, and the Kapha type person is more laid back in their responses to stimuli from their environment. Things just sort of roll off of them more easily. Interesting. So do you, and this is, if if by any chance, do you have like three examples of maybe famous people that you would associate with these, with these three doshas so that people can kind of see a visual? Hmm. Well... Thoughts of people are the artists in our world, so painters, musicians, writers, photographers, those people who are very creative and free-spirited as we see them. So choose any rock star from the world today, um, actors, musicians, famous writers, all of those people are going to have a strong component of vata to their disposition. Um I would say someone who had a strong Pitta background who's world famous might be somebody like Steve Jobs who is legendary for his for his ambition and drive and fiery temper <laughs> mm-hmm. among his workforce. Kepha people are very relaxed. They are um they're hard to ruffle. They're the people who don't necessarily have a, a role as the leader in an organization, but they definitely can keep things on track. So for that reason, I think it's a little bit hard to pull up a famous example of a Kepha person just off the top. Sorry. Right. I actually just thought of one. It's uh, this, I forget his name. Steve Jobs. Not not sidekick. That's a horrible way of describing it. But um, Wozniak. Wozniak. That's yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, that's his body type fits with that, and I think that he is a little bit more laid back. Yeah, so they would have worked well together. Mm-hmm. It's a good observation. Interesting. And that's sort of how you interact with people in your daily life. You know, we if we are with people who are just like us then we have a tendency to limit ourselves um, in what we're able to accomplish and what we're able to appreciate. 
if you surround yourself with people who complement and balance you, you're much more likely to be able to achieve goals and hopes and dreams and wishes more easily when all of the energies are working together. Interesting. I definitely want to talk about that a bit more, but first I have a question around the three doshas. So do we have each of the three doshas within us and we just kind of have different ratios of each or are we kind of more associated with one dosha? Both of those things I think are accurate in their description. Everyone is born with all three doshas present in them. A dosha is sort of like a fingerprint. So everyone has all three of these elements, but they are different ratios in each person. So whichever one is dominant for you will be the you will display, I think about two-thirds of the characteristics will be weighted toward one or two doshas, and then the third dosha will have very few characteristics for each person. So the word itself, loosely translated from Sanskrit, means mistake. So whichever one is the most dominant is the one that's the most prevalent and out of balance is the one that needs to be pacified the most so the other two have a chance to express properly. Hardly anyone is evenly balanced across all three doshas, just you know, naturally. Mm-hmm. So, but you do have all three of them. Interesting. Okay, so how in in is yoga and Ayurveda? Are there practices within yoga and Ayurveda that help to balance those three? Then. Yes, um, all of yoga and Ayurveda is used for those purposes. Yoga and Ayurveda are sister sciences in the Indian traditions. Yoga has been the tool that was handed down to us to help us to get the fluctuations of the mind under control. So, you know, you're able to respond to situations in your everyday life from a place that's more balanced and even as opposed to being reactive. The Ayurveda vidya is used more to address the fluctuations in the body. And what we were just talking about with everyone having, you know, those, that mixture of doshas in their makeup, vata, pitta, and kapha, you're born with something that is permanent that you cannot change, and that's called prakriti. The conditions that you find yourself in throughout the course of your life, things like where you're living, the people that you live with, the kind of work that you're doing, the foods that you're eating, the weather around you, all of those things influence the part of you that's constantly changing, which Ayurveda refers to as vrikriti. So you use your yoga practice and your lifestyle as a way to help balance out anything that might be flaring up. So, for instance, when we're here in Tamarindo and it's very hot, you would maybe do a more cooling practice that involved more backbends, and you might eat foods that were more cooling to the system, things like yogurt and cheeses and, um, and limit the hot, spicy things like chili peppers and garlic and onions and things like that. They would take you more out of balance in the direction of pitta. I have a huge smile on my face right now because my (laughs) doshas are way in balance (laughs) and have been since Costa Rica most likely. So 
Uh, it's interesting you say that because I, I've noticed that even in Michigan, because obviously, you know, we have cold winters up here. Mm-hmm. And during the winters, I want things like soup and hot tea yeah. and things that keep me warm and, and uh, kind of uh, stir that vasa. The vasa is the heat, correct? Or is that the pitta? Pitta is the one that's heat. The okay. one that you're feeling the need for the the soups and sort of things that we consider comfort foods or nurturing foods, mm-hmm. one pot meals, soups and stews, casseroles, things that are all cooked together. Those are really good for people with a vata dosha. It's vata people have a low digestive fire, so they can eat. And eat, and eat 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 some more without gaining a tremendous amount of weight because the digestive fire is low. It does not fully absorb all of the nutrients into the tissues. So a lot of the nutrients that come from that food are excreted. So the tissues always feel a little bit hungry for the vata person. Um, it's very common for a vata person to be planning the next meal before they finish the one that they're having. So that's that's a cut. Do you, does that resonate for you? <laughs> Not really, actually. But I do love to eat, and I and I do uh, that. The first most the first eighty percent of what you t- discuss, uh, talked about definitely resonates. But I'm usually pretty focused on the meal that I'm eating because I grew up in a large family, so you eat fast, and I'm still working on that too. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's fear-based. That's a fear-based need to true. have enough to consume. So that, again, goes back to vata. Yeah. yeah. And what you said about 80% of it resonating, that's um, very much in line with the balance of the doshas in your system. So you'll have about 70 to 80% of your characteristics that are weighted toward one, and the rest of the characteristics will be spread across the remaining two. So... To identify with something 100% is very rare. You know, as as we talked about just a second ago, you know, it's rare to find a person who is evenly balanced between vata, pitta, and kapha. It's even more rare to find an individual who is one dosha only. Like there are hardly any people who are purely vata or purely pitta or purely kapha. Mm-hmm. And then there are there are different levels of imbalance. Um, my teacher says that there are three levels. The first one is provoked, where conditions around you are set in such a way that it would be easy for one or the other of one of the doshas to go out of balance. When you move beyond provoked, you get to the stage that is disturbed. So disturbed means that you might actually start to manifest some characteristics in your physical body, some you know, disturbance like dry skin. If you're a vata person, you know, if you're getting a little too airy and light and dried out, the skin will start to dry and that will manifest in your body. Deranged is the last level and that's where we try to stay away from. Can you talk a bit about that more? Deranged is a deeply entrenched imbalance within the system. So... There are two different approaches for something that gets that deeply entrenched. Um, Always the first course of treatment in Ayurveda is to remove the cause if you can. That's not always possible. So if the system is weakened, you begin with strengthening the system and then removing some of the causes and mitigating effects. If the system is strong, 
you can just start with removing the um, treating the symptoms. Right. Okay. And the effects. Interesting. So, and to bring it back to the balancing balancing the doses real quick because this is interesting. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, in Costa Rica, uh, I was well in Michigan. You know, eating eating hot foods during the winter time when it's when it's cold out. But then in Costa Rica, for some reason, you know, even though it's 95, 97 degrees every single day, I was still craving hot sauce and, and hot peppers and, and things like that. So, and then to bring up another example of that, uh, I know people that kind of crave the cold mm-hmm. and like just love the cold weather. And I don't at all. I love heat. I love warm weather. I love warm, you know, hot food. I love, I just crave heat. I love saunas, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, um, well, you crave the things that take you more out of balance. Interesting. So because for, that dosha is strong and it wants to be stronger, so it it makes you want more of the things that strengthen it. Interesting. So it's strengthening the one dosha, but it's causing an imbalance. At the expense the of the other two, yes. Interesting. So it's not really strengthening overall, it's just a facade. It's strengthening the dosha. It's weakening the other two, therefore taking your system more out of balance. And your goal is to try to get them all three even. All three even? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. That's, that sounds tricky. It's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> hard work. But the thing about Ayurveda that I like so much is it's not a fatalistic system. It doesn't tell you that you can never have the things that will take you out of balance. It explains to you how those things are likely to manifest, what to expect, and what you can do to mitigate those responses and get yourself back on track. Right. So what would an example of that be uh, for someone to kind of mitigate that and get back on track? If they were in a situation where they're in the heat and they're craving things like hot sauces and spicy foods, is that what you're asking? Yeah, that, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So in that case, I would recommend that that person spend time around water, whether it's the ocean or a pool or something like a river or a lake. Um, water represents the kapha energy, so that will automatically bring that up in the body. And you could also switch from raw onions and garlics and things like that in salsas to roasting or cooking those vegetables because if you use purple or yellow onions and they are cooked, they turn wholly sweet or vata after cooking. But when they're raw, they're still very hot and have their pitta qualities. So it's not that you cannot have those things, but you need to change their preparation. You could also increase your consumption of things like yogurt and cheeses and frozen treats, like fruit pops, you know, something like smoothies, mm. frozen smoothies would be a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe with a yogurt base or a milk or almond milk or something like that. Mm-hmm. So you just create a balancing... Mm-hmm. So you, you you look for the balancing foods, vata mm-hmm. uh, or pitta or kapha pacifying diet, and those things are easy to find. Um, <clears throat> you also treat it with your lifestyle. So the kind of yoga that you're doing would also have an impact. So if it's really, really super hot, you're not going to want to do a lot of sun salutations in a room that's heated to 95 or 105 degrees or something like that. It will take you way, way out of balance. Um, 
you would seek a practice that's more restorative, um, possibly more focused toward backbends to increase the vata and decrease the pitta. Okay. Just to go back to the to the uh, uh, balancing the doshas real quick. For someone that kind of craves cold, cold weather, uh, mm-hmm. cold foods, they don't like hot foods. They don't like garlic, hot sauce. You know, anything hot really. For them, would you kind of recommend the opposite then to, mm-hmm. to yes. move towards you the would heat? you would actually move that person in the direction of a hotter practice. So something that was more focused on sun salutations or where there's a large expenditure of energy and heating and warming the body. Um, those characteristics that you're describing, the craving cold and enjoying those things, that's kapha. So it's sluggish and um, it likes to be still. So you get that moving to to counteract, to counterbalance that tendency to... Um, to settle. Right. To settle and be still. Interesting. Cool. So that's very interesting, especially for, I think, for me, I'm mostly uh, Pitta and, and uh, Vata. Yeah. Um, and for me, I, I'm, it's good for me and people like me to hear those things because uh, I've, I can focus more on cooling foods and mm-hmm. taking colder showers, which actually is something I'm doing now. Um, to kind of balance the energy in those doshas. So that's, I think, very valuable information. Uh, so thank you for that. You're um, welcome. To, to uh, move into uh, Bikram yoga, uh, this was something actually, initially before I moved to Costa Rica, I was kind of intrigued by it. My uncle does it, and he says he loves it. And I always kind of run into people, and they're like, oh, I love it, it's awesome. And they're like addicted to it, and it's like a drug to them. <laughs> and, and it really which, does feel like that, and they talk about it in that kind of way. Uh, but which that, goes back to what we were just talking about with you craving the thing that takes you more out of balance. Yeah. It's the same with the physical practice. So, so that's one reason why you don't recommend Bikram Yoga, but beyond that, what are some other reasons that could be kind of harmful to the, to the mind or body? Well, I don't think that that would be one of the reasons that I don't recommend Bikram. I mean, it's it's... For someone who has a very strong pitta dosha, Mm -hmm. yes, I would use that as a reason to not recommend Bikram. Beyond that, um, I think the sequence with Bikram yoga is really good. I like the sequence of poses, and I think it's very useful and helpful. The things that I have seen to be an issue with that type of practice is the room is heated to 104 degrees. So first of all, if you have any kind of underlying issues with heart or blood pressure, it's very dangerous in those instances. It also has the tendency to allow the connective tissue to release more than it otherwise is able to, which is another reason that people really enjoy that practice because you're able to do things in there that you're not having access to in slower-paced or cooler practices. The reason that that is maybe not as desirable as you might think is the connective tissue has set points for a reason. It holds you in your skeleton in a position where your particular body is safe. Everyone has the same ligaments, tendons, muscles, bones, all of that business is the same, but you've all been through different experiences that cause um, 
constrictions in some places and maybe hyperextension in others. So it's sort of, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You know, it's releasing more in a pose is not always necessarily good. You may not have the muscle strength necessary to support yourself in that new place of release that you were able to attain because the connective tissue has loosened more. The connective tissue is more along the lines of something like hard plastic that stretches and does not move back into place. It's not like rubber, you know, that stretches and moves back into its form very easily. Once it's stretched, it's just there, and that's what you have to work with for the rest of your life until we get to the point where we can 3D print you a new knee you're stuck with the one that you've got. <laughs> you know, we may not be very far away from that, but for the time being, it's better if you just take care of the equipment that you have. Yeah, and that 3D knee may be made out of plastic or something. It could, yeah. Synthetic that you don't really want on your body anyway. <laughs> it's not, it totally is possible. But, you know, they're they're doing really amazing things. They're printing craniums and ears and livers that function. It's not far off, I yeah. think. Yeah. There there can be some very interesting things that come from that, for sure. Definitely. So so that's very informative and, and definitely valuable uh, for someone like me, especially to kind of, uh, like you said, focus more on restorative yoga uh, and, and the, the cooling side of things. And I think mm-hmm. you, you made a great point there, too, because uh, a lot of times in yoga, and I've interviewed a few people, a few yoga teachers on the podcast, and you know, read a few books, and from from my understanding, when you're trying to force something or push something, that's when uh, injury can occur, and and it's mm-hmm. just it's just not it becomes not desirable. Yeah, it's not desirable. It becomes regretful, painful, not enjoyable, and it doesn't really restore you like yoga should and, and balance the doshas. So um, that's a great point and uh, very very useful. Um, I want to talk a bit about the uh, working with children in yoga. I think that's so cool. Uh, I love kids, as you know. You know, I mm-hmm. any small child around. If if I have an opportunity to kick a ball or throw a football or whatever it is with a with a kid, I'm there 100 percent of the time. Um, so what, what did you working with yoga with children? That's something that's so you know obviously kids you know they're distracted easily. They're you know, their their whole world is still emerging and their kind of senses are evolving day by day. So yoga is such a forming practice. How, first question is, how did you even teach children yoga? I think that'd be a challenge <laughs> in and of itself. How, how did that even... What's the secret well, to that recipe? That's definitely <laughs> a concern. I think that's where the background in elementary education has really been helpful to me. I was a classroom kindergarten teacher for five years before I decided to try that project. And I didn't think that anybody in Arkansas was going to let me do it. So I packed up and I moved to California and I settled in Santa Barbara. And I worked, the first year that I was there, I worked managing Santa Barbara Yoga Center, running their teacher training program. And while I was doing that, I wrote a proposal and one of the school districts, Hope School District in Santa Barbara, accepted it, you know, they they said that they would let me come in and teach the classes. And from there, um, I wrote another proposal and submitted that to the Balm Foundation. 
They, in turn, accepted the proposal and provided me with funding to seed the program for the first three years. During that time, I was able to figure out some ways to turn it into a workable business, um, you know, or make it pay for itself. And I was able to make a living teaching yoga to kids, so that was really nice. Um, the background in elementary education, I think, was key because I have numerous, numerous colleagues in the yoga world who have been interested in doing that work and and very, you know, they'll ask to come to a class and observe because they think they want to do it. And then by the time we're leaving, they're like, oh, my gosh, there's no way. How do you do that? Yeah. So a lot of it I have relied on classroom management skills that I learned, you know, when I was doing my pre-professional work for educational background. Very cool. Um, so that was the start of it. I think that it, the idea took root because as I was, you know, continuing in my own practice and I had by then started teaching in some different places, you know, a health club here and a hospital program in another place as a wellness program for doctors and nurses and whatnot, employees of the hospital. Um, I had friends, you know, by then I had started to get a little bit dissatisfied with the way that the educational system is functioning in the States at the present time. I wanted to make a change and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do so I took some time off to kind of try to figure out you know what was available to me with the skill sets that I had and this was something that I thought would be enjoyable you know that I had skill sets in place for and as I had been practicing all these years you know people kept saying oh, I wish I had known about this when I was younger. And I think I might have benefited from myself, you know, had I been exposed to it at a younger age, too. So I thought I would just give it a try. So when my girlfriends, who were still teachers in elementary settings in Arkansas, and when they would do a unit on health or multicultural education, something like that, they would invite me to come, and I would do you know, 20 or 30 minutes of yoga with the kids, and it was well-received in those settings. So I thought that I could parlay that into something that was mm, more distributed to more people, more kids. Mm -hmm. So that facilitated the move to California. That's so cool. And is that is that a program or something like that still running today in California? Yes. Yeah, uh, when I started doing it in Santa Barbara, there was one other woman in town who taught yoga to children. And when I left last year, there were about 200 people that were doing it. So two, it caught on. Two, wow, <laughs> 200 people teaching yeah, children? Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, it got to be really popular when uh, when Ann Vandewater and I were the two people that were teaching in Santa Barbara. We both offered it as either an after-school program that kids could enroll in at their parents, you know, they would pay for it as an activity like soccer or tennis lessons or something like that. Um, the schools that took it on and made it part of their curriculum used it as either a physical education activity or as an enrichment activity like Spanish or computers. Okay. And one of the things that made California attractive was before I moved, I did a little bit of research, and it turned out that 
yoga had been approved as a um, physical education activity in California for 20 years at that point, and that was 10 years, you know, 12 years ago. So it's been, there's a, there was a precedent for it. It wasn't very popular or widespread at that time, but it got that way. Um, a lot of the things that happened when I was there, you know, teaching, um, I'm not sure if you're up to date or keep track of what happens with the state of California's finances, but they went through a very, very rough time with the economic downturn a few years ago. And the state and federal funding models changed for the schools, so they lost a lot of funding. And that made it more challenging for schools to pick up programs like mine and fund them. And what ended up happening was moms who were doing yoga, you know, at their local studio when their kid was in third grade, they would volunteer to go in one day a week and teach yoga to their kid's class. You know, so a lot of people started getting on board with that. And it's just become something that's warmly embraced by the community there. And it's very nice to see. So it feels like that work is continuing and in a very positive way. That's so cool. And 200 people teaching, I mean, that's literally impacting... <laughs> well, it may not be 200. That's just a number that I'm pulling out of the air. But there are a lot of classrooms. There are, let's see, there were seven schools that I was going to in Santa Barbara, and you have kindergarten through sixth grade in the elementary, and then there's middle school and high school beyond that. So, you know, however many people they could get to participate in the program like that, it was widely offered. Right. Basically a lot of numbers added together. Yeah. <laughs> it's very it's very impressive, and it's so cool because that I think that literally is fundamentally changing and helping the youth uh, develop in a healthier way. Uh, and, and Santa Barbara. So anyone listening from Santa Barbara, you have Katrina Hanna to thank for uh, part of your community's awesomeness. Um, <laughs> so in, in I, from, from you know you working with the kids, was there anything that you saw or anything that you've kind of heard even years after initiating that that just made you think, wow, this is really making a positive impact? Hmm... When I first started the program, I had one of my schools, the teachers that were involved in that program, they had their students to write thank you notes to myself and to the people at the Baum Foundation who had funded us. And some of the things that those children wrote were so insightful and so encouraging. And I still have students to this day you know, who I had in a yoga class five or ten years ago, and they come to me now and they're grown up, you know, and they they talk about the ways that it impacted them. And something specific, I mean, if you're looking for a specific example, I did some private lessons with a group of, I think they were 12 years old, 12-year-old boys that were surfers, and they were on a, you know, a competitive surf, surfing circuit, and their parents um, enrolled them in these these private sessions so that they could help to you know facilitate their surfing skills and keep them free of injury, help them to be able to develop focus and concentration. Um, one of the boys who was doing that particular 
class with me also had a lot of issues with ADHD, and he had been medicated for many, many years. And he actually, he, he told his mother that he felt like the yoga helped him more than the medication did, and they were able to taper off some of his medication and actually get him off of that during you know the time that he was taking yoga, and I think that he's continued with it. That's so cool. That is yeah. so awesome. I think yoga has such a positive impact. I saw a uh, actually a Netflix documentary called, I believe it was Dharma Brothers. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. of that? I have not, no. It's about, uh, it's about well, actually it, was, actually, it was more meditation, I think, about it. But I think they did a little bit of yoga in it as well. But um, me- basically, meditation and yoga, either or both, kind of focused breath work and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, the yoga poses are actually designed in such a way that they're meant to loosen the body enough that you will be comfortable sitting in a pose to meditate. Mm-hmm. That's the main focus of the poses. I mean, they're they're like maintenance. It's like putting oil in your car or checking the air in the tires. It's there. It's there to keep you moving physically, so that your body is healthy and comfortable enough that you can devote some of your time and attention to your spiritual well-being and development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly through a meditation practice. Right, yeah, and that's exactly, the film kind of documented their journey and showed how before they started this practice, the meditation practice, how, you know, they're criminals, they're fear-based, and all this kind of stuff, and then through the practice, they they lightened up, they found balance, they began to see each other as human beings again, and it really just healed them in that situation. It was a really beautiful journey uh, to see that. Uh, so working with kids at a young age and playing that, I think, it has a lot thing. of potential. Yeah. yeah. And traditional yoga, you know, when it's presented in the Ashtanga form and not the Ashtanga that has gotten popular in the states in the last few years, yeah. that's focused on solely a physical practice. In a traditional sense, eight limbed or Ashtanga yoga is used to refer to first and second. These two branches called yama and niyama, and those two words mean control and observance. Yama and niyama are things like satya, sankhya, and ahimsa. Satya is truthfulness, sankhya is not stealing, ahimsa means to do no harm. Um, The controls would be the yamas, niyamas, the observances, things like cleanliness and you know, non-covetousness, things of that nature. If you move beyond those to a practice of asana or physical poses, then into pranayama or breath work. The breath work, the breathing exercises, are used to help you to develop the next two, which are dhyana and dharana, or one-pointed focus and concentration. Those two things, as you progress, they help you to see how restless your mind is, like all the little thoughts that come up while you're sitting for meditation, like, you know, that person didn't call me back in a timely manner, or what am I going to make for dinner, or is there gas in the car, all those little distractions, you start noticing how jumpy your mind is, and each one of those thoughts can give rise to different emotions or feelings. And once you have an understanding of how transitory those things are, you're less likely to need to hold on to those fleeting 
thoughts and emotions and begin to develop something that the yogis call pratyahara or non-attachment. From there, when you're able to combine all those things, it becomes samadhi or practice. Very cool. Speaking on that practice, this is a very, very open-ended question. You can take it wherever you want. But yoga is a practice. Uh, Meditation is a practice. Ayurveda is a practice. I think life is a practice, really. What, mm-hmm. On that note, what, and this is just kind of a way to, to uh, sum up the interview, if you will, what three main practices have you, would you recommend to the listeners to kind of evolve and engage and, and grow in their lives or just improve their lives and either their mind, body, or spiritual uh, health? First and foremost, I would recommend meditation practice. Whether you're able to do physical yoga poses or not, the benefits of a meditation practice are immeasurable. It helps to balance your mind and emotions in ways that are difficult to articulate. We're starting to see a lot of scientific research that is supportive of what the yogis have been saying for years, you know, many thousands of years. These things work. They create changes in your brain that allow you to um, perceive situations more clearly with less reactivity. Um, The meditation practice would be the first and foremost thing that I would recommend. The physical practice of yoga is very important for, are very useful for being able to, you know, live a life that is as healthy physically as you can. Um, It can rehabilitate injuries, as it did in my case. If you are not beset with physical problems, it can keep you in a state that's healthy and strong and well-balanced. For the third principle, I would say knowing what your dosha is, and there are many quizzes and things online that you can find and take, and when you take a dosha test, it is definitely a test that it is in your best interest to not cheat. (laughs) (laughs) You're only cheating yourself in that case, and I would even go so far as to suggest that you have a good friend who knows you very well to answer the questions with or for you because they will be more accurate (laughs) in their responses because you're inclined to respond the way that you would like to be. Right. (laughs) That's a great point. How you actually are. Yeah, that's funny. So be very honest in your answers and once you've determined what your dosha is, find out what the diet is that will help you to modify and stay even and balanced and and follow that, you know, when you need it. And there are certainly going to be times, you know, when you're imbalanced and things happen in your life that take you out of your place where you're steady and stable and grounded. And that's just life, you know. It's a practice. And everything that happens is your opportunity to observe your reactions to these things and to... Maybe if you can't respond in the way that you would hope to, to at least be aware that you're not doing that, you know, and you have a chance to do better next time. Awesome. That is so awesome, so valuable. And that, the, the dosha test is funny. That's a great tip, too, having someone else 
take the test for you because I just, my, I can yeah. just, my, I don't know what mine would say, but probably say something like error, input invalid or input, <laughs> input overwhelming, please go back, <laughs> or I don't know, something. Uh, so that's a great, great tip and uh, to really get the truth uh, in, the, in the most if you if you are interested in taking a quiz, and I, one of the books that I like the most, I think it's a really good resource for people who are interested in Ayurveda and its practice, is a book by Dr. Robert Svoboda, and it's called Prakriti, Your Ayurvedic Constitution. That book gives a really nice layout of the doshas, what they are, what their characteristics are mentally, emotionally, and physically. It goes on to delineate diets that are good for balancing each one. And then within the dietary recommendations, it breaks things down by fruits and grains and vegetables and beverages and even vices because Ayurveda recognizes that we are not perfect and we will indulge in things that are not good for us from time to time. So it recommends the one that's least disturbing to your dosha. So so there's that. Um, I also like that book because it's written by a Westerner, so it's easier for people with who are not you know, Indian and have not been immersed in that culture their whole lives, it's easier to understand and grasp, I think. That's, that's awesome. Are there, and, and on that note, I know you're very resourceful. You've studied with amazing people. Are there any other resources or books you'd recommend? Um, I would recommend, if you're interested in developing a meditation practice, There are some online sites that you can go and visit and listen to Dharma Talks for free. You can download or stream them. You can also buy the podcast if you want to. The first one I would recommend is called Dharma Seed. It has the most extensive list of teachers and talks. Uh, Jack Cornfield would be the person that I would recommend you seek out from that one in particular. Audio Dharma features a teacher named Gil Gil Farnsdale and he's really amazing, he's lovely and then Dharma Wisdom with Philip Moffat is also a very nice site, I like the way that that one's organized as well awesome. so those are good resources there thank you so much, and then actually on the on the dosha test, are there, are there any specific sites for that or take it, people can just google that just Google it. Just Google okay. Dosha test, and there will be a lot of different ones that come up, and you can find ones that are relatively simple and ones that are, you know, very in depth. And they'll ask you about the shading and the color of your fingernails. Oh, <laughs> they wow. get really specific. <laughs> but a really quick way to determine what you are is to think about your emotional responses to triggers. It's sort of like the fight flight, or freeze that we describe in Western terms. Mm-hmm. So the fight is pitta, the freeze is kapha, is vata, uh, or excuse me, freeze is kapha, and flee, or run away, <laughs> the battle cry of vata. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Robert says that the, the three dosha types will get up in the morning, Vata will come outside and look around and see this vast, beautiful space of inspiration with flowers and birds and trees, and they want to go get some chai and go sit down and write some poetry. 
And then the pitta person will come outside and look and see that there are some weeds that need to be pulled in the flower bed and someone needs to wash the car. And if someone could pick up the newspaper out the driveway, that would be good. And then they'll jump in the car, zip off to the office and start telling people what to do there. The kapha person will come outside and see that these two have things well in hand and go back in for his morning nap. <laughs> so, this is, you know, well, thumbnail it, sketch. It sounds like kapha's where it's at then. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's very funny. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Katrina. I have truly enjoyed this um, very, very much, and I think the listeners will enjoy this so much as well. It's been so valuable. You're such an inspiration, and uh, there's just so much value here. So thank you so much for your time, and uh, you have an awesome rest of the night. Thank you very much, David. It's my pleasure to share this, and I'm honored to have an opportunity to do so. Uh, my, my heart's melting like dark chocolate on a hot Costa Rican day. <laughs> Right. We miss you here in Tamarindo. Come well, back. Come I'll, back soon. I, I might have to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have an awesome night. You're welcome. Bye. Goodbye.